Welcome to episode 21 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Today's guest grapples with big life questions and tries to make the answers he finds through his careful research accessible for all people. He is currently the executive director of Social Research Lab at University of Northern Colorado, director of the DeTurch Project, and an associate professor of sociology. He studies institutional participation in America and helps organizations to understand why their customers, clients, and members have left and what they can do to get them back. His research has appeared in numerous academic and trade publications, including a 2015 entry in the Leadership Journal titled Meet the Duns. This referred to the growing number of people who have moved away from organized religion, but not from God. But you don't have to be an academic to read his work. His first book from the Church Project called Church Refugees is available on Amazon. He regularly speaks, consults, and takes on research projects for clients who seek a better understanding of why people are just not enamored with large institutions anymore. We met when he presented on the main stage at Influence 2016, the annual conference of the National Speakers Association. He was there to relay the news that we have to rethink our relationships in order to fully understand authority and influence in the modern era. It's not just one industry that is declining membership. Trust in institutions of all kinds are at an all-time low. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Josh Picard, Josh, thanks for joining me from your office in Greeley, Colorado. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Josh, I want to just jump right in. I know my audience will be curious to hear a little bit more about you and your day-to-day, but since this is a podcast about leadership and building great networks, I want you to tell me, what does leadership mean to you, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, and I, I really I appreciate. I mean, having been on other podcasts with you know less sort of focus and clarity, I really appreciate that. You know, you've you've honed in on this thing, and and it gives your audience and us a chance to really know what we're talking about. Um, and and so thank you for that, and for starting mm-hmm. off the conversation this way. The for it's a weird question to ask about leadership. I mean, I think in some ways, I think like if you have a really great answer about why you're a great leader, you're probably not a great leader. Um, <laughs> we all, you know, like we all know the traits that supposed great leaders have, um, but it's when when I look at those in abstract, um, they often if you if you if you didn't know that they were framed in the in the chapter of the book about great leadership, and the, if you instead had erroneously assume that the chapter was entitled like how to be a narcissist um, and an egomaniac, I think you would conclude that they're uh, one and the same. So and many I think similarities. We, we get, right. I think we get some really bad advice about what it means to be a great leader uh, in our in our culture. But for me, I, I happen to, um, I sort of was able to buck that you know, from a very young age. Um, my parents instilled in me that it was way, and, it, and this is part of being an only child and, and all kinds of things that are peculiar to me, but, um, so I don't mean to be flippant and say that this is easy, but they, they really taught me that it was way more important to be respected than liked. Um, that ultimately in order to do the things that you wanted to do, 
you needed respect. You didn't necessarily need people to like you. You didn't need popularity as long as people could respect you. And that really comes down to integrity. And and that for me has been the foundation mm-hmm. of of all the things I've tried to do. Sometimes I fall short. Um, you know, I don't I don't always I don't always hit the mark on those things. But it, I think people understand your intentions. They understand your values. If you're if you're striving to act with integrity in all manners. And then the way that you choose to enact or what you choose to do with that respect that you've been, you know, that you've earned and been given, um, that's what leadership looks like. And sometimes that means convincing people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And, uh, and sometimes that means just forging your own path. Um, and then, and knowing that, um, you've earned the space and the right to be able to do that without being constantly criticized or without having to care about when you're constantly criticized, was the, there a time in your life when you started to kind of put this together? It sounds like you've <laughs> given this quite a bit of thought and it, and practice, I imagine. But when did this sort of ph- philosophy of leadership emerge for you? Was there examples in your life or was there a moment of clarity when you realized, huh, I'm, I'm doing this thing and people are seeming to get it. I'm, I'm being respected, but also followed and we're getting somewhere together. Right. The, the, so I, I, I'm in I'm in academia and I'm in this weird place in academia where I'm I'm in a department that is a sociology department which most most sociology departments do a lot of academic research it's academics talking to other academics and I certainly cut my teeth that way that's the way I was brought up through the discipline and I I have done plenty of that work but my department happens to be um, what we call an applied sociology department and so we are and there's not a whole lot of us um, but we're in terms of in the country. Our focus is really on trying to make it do research that makes an impact on the real world. And, and so when I decided a couple of years ago that I was really going to pursue, I was really going to take that to heart. You know, like I, we weren't just going to say it and I wasn't just going to talk about it in the classroom, but that I was going to actively pursue research projects that could speak to industries, nonprofits, um, uh, associations and that kind of stuff that, uh, I just sort of thought like, I, you know, do I ultimately care about being liked by my peers mm. and and doing the things that they that they care about and would make me sort of popular among them? And the answer to that is no. And and maybe it would have been that I would have pursued it and not been good enough. I'm not saying that you know I, I had book offers and you know prestigious university titles laying at my feet and I rejected them. I'm not claiming that at all. I, I ultimately chose a different path, and that was the moment at which I, I that was a clear moment for me of like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, and over the last couple of years, it's, uh, it has really paid off. And I think it has paid off because of that, uh, the, the stance with integrity. I mean, I pursued it honestly. It wasn't for my own, you know, it wasn't for my own ego. It was because it's where the research took me. I used all of my skills that I had been trained with to, to really try and make an impact. So um, even before then, the Josh, even before this opportunity, because it sounds like you, you saw an opportunity given that your department was really about applied uh, social science and and not just theoretical social science. Mm-hmm. And that it was about how does it apply to the real world? And I, I'm grateful to meet people like you that are really bridging the sort of uh, world of you know journals and people like you <laughs> who wouldn't be reading those journals. Um, but to, to take that opportunity to heart, was there earlier evidence that you had stepped forward to be the person willing to pursue your own path, even against the fact that, like in this example, you know, others are all foraging one way and you're like, nope, I'm going to try this other path. <laughs> um, n- not particularly. I mean, there's like, I, 
I had broached the topic, you know, when I was a, a first and second year graduate student, and it was quickly beaten out of me. And I had really <laughs> great advisors at Vanderbilt um, when I was a graduate student. They had my best interests in mind. Um, and so, I, but I learned pretty quickly. I was like, oh, I can't talk about that for the next four years, at least not in front of my faculty. Um, so, it, it, and I and and they they did have my best interest in mind. If I had pursued the path that I wanted to pursue when I was a second year graduate student, I never would have gotten a job. Hmm. It's you know I I hadn't in my head I knew what I wanted to do, um, but I hadn't earned the right to do it yet. Um, there was no reason for anybody if I was going to do something dramatically different for my field. There was no reason why anybody should let me do that. I hadn't even proved that I could do the thing that my field did. Yeah. So there's uh, there's a lesson somewhere in there about needing right. to kind of pay your dues and know the thing that you're supposed to know before you go changing it. But isn't that so hard, Rob? I mean, like that's the thing that like it, it's such a fine line between like are you selling out, giving in, mm -hmm. or are you paying dues and learning? And mm -hmm. and I, I I don't know. I wish I had better insight into what made that work for me. But I don't. I mean, it just all, all, I, all I know is that through that whole process, I was trying really hard to soak up what I thought was good and right about my graduate education while trying also equally as hard to not give up the core of what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I uh, have a master's in social work and for like a minute and a half considered whether to go for my doctorate. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I would need to be really excited about something from the moment that I applied for many, many years after. And that the <laughs> first couple of years, I wouldn't really be able to do anything with it, no. except know that I was on a path getting me closer to finally being able to do that thing. And yeah. I had a hard time really imagining sustaining that level of excitement, particularly with the, the inability to move it forward for so long. So I think I wanna give you some kudos for having this passion for so many years carrying it forward. And now it sounds like you've really moved it forward. I want to actually hear a little bit about what you find really rewarding about the work that you're doing now. Sure. Well, it really is that, I mean, I, I, I'm a, I'm a communicator and a teacher at heart and there's a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, existing solely in the classroom is probably, I had a job, that was my first job um, at, a, at a small university in Texas. I taught five classes each semester and um, was on the market often. I mean, every year I think that I was there, I was on the job market um, because I knew that that wasn't the right place. And I thought maybe I wanted a more teaching intensive um, uh, job and applied for one at a small liberal arts university and actually, and got it. Um, but as my wife and I sat down and talked about like what our lives would look like at that university, um, even though we weren't happy where we were, we knew that we, that wasn't going to solve the problem. Um, and so what, what I really wanted to do was to to be able to communicate and teach more broadly, not necessarily more often or on a smaller scale. Mm. And so we didn't know that though until that moment. You know, the moment that they they emailed the job offer and it's like, okay, are we going to take this and uproot our family and move or not? Um, and so that was a that was a key for me was was understanding like, oh, okay, like this is this is the thing I want to do and that's the way I want to do it. Uh, but it was it was a it was it was not like. I don't know. I think too often leaders paint this picture of, um, or, or people who have gotten to positions of prominence or to positions where other people want to be, they look back at the course of their lives, they decode the steps that went into them getting to where they are, and they say, "So those are the steps you should follow." And I, I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily true for me. It's not. I don't feel like I cracked any code. I, I just, I, I was 
consistently soliciting the advice of people who were trusted and who cared about me and my family and and then trying to be really honest with ourselves about what we wanted. And sometimes, you know, some of those conversations came down, frankly, to money. Um, where yeah. we're like, I don't want that job because it doesn't pay well enough. Um, and well, and it's, those, it's, it's about money and also what kind of work you're getting to do. Well, and so that was what I was going to say. And so then the other yeah. part was like, sometimes jobs came along that paid well, but I was like, I don't want to do that. Right. Um, but it's, if you're not, if you don't have a good sense of who you are and it's really hard to act in, with integrity in those spaces because you can end up chasing the thing that everybody else says is really important. Well, it sounds like you had great people surrounding you, as you said, had your best interests at heart. Knew, knew you and knew the field and could help kind of guide you through it. But you also had a particularly strong calling that you wanted to really hold true to. And that's the integrity you're talking about. But now that you're there, what's what's rewarding about the work that you're doing now? What's what's the impact that you're able to see now that you finally achieved this uh, this level of the, your career? So there's I think about that in a couple of ways. One is personal and one is institutional. Um, I, I, I do feel this. Uh, um, the strong desire that I'm uh, as a part of a team in my department and we're, um, we're all mostly on the same page. I mean, and in any given year we feel this to varying degrees, but more or less the 10 of us in my department are on the same page that we, we really want to show the rest of the world and ourselves that like this thing can work. You can be a thriving applied and vibrant and vital to your local community sociology department with a you know, we have a master's program so we're graduating students that go right into the field they go right into the workforce some of our students go get phds so, so that's one thing like i i get really an, uh, energized around the forward progress of our department we have a clear goal and a thing that we're trying to do personally though the like i i really get rewarded when when I get to, well, I mean, we, this happened in Phoenix a little bit at NSA, like I get to stand up in front of however many people, whether it's 10 pastors at a small retreat and we're talking about, you know, deep diving into the book, or if it's 1500 people at um, NSA and they don't actually care at all about my religious research, they want to know the the broader message. I get to talk about sociology. I get to, you know, communicate to the world what it's like to think sociologically, which is pretty different than the way we generally think about the world. That's really neat. I, I'm like totally geeking out over what you're talking about. I, you know, I'm having like flashbacks be way before I thought about going for my MSW and thought about going any direction like that. I remember sitting in a mall watching that if they changed where the plants and the benches were, it changed where people came out of the big box stores, and which direction they went. Mm. which determines sort of where the cells were <laughs> <laughs> and that we Sorry. are just sheep just like following the path of least resistance and that somebody else is sort of creating this maze for us that we're you know following and i was yeah. fascinated that this is happening all around us all the time and most of us aren't even aren't aware of it or don't have language for it and that there's someone like you who's not just like aware of it but is studying it and is now making the extra effort to translate what you're discovering so that more people, like, as you said, like more people can, you know, really understand and, and have access to that information because right. we're the practitioners, you know, I love, there was a line you said about how ineffectual standing up in front of a room as a talking head is these <laughs> days. And you're like, I understand the irony that I'm standing up here as the talking head, but <laughs> well, in my in my original task, Scott Halford, who was organizing, was one of the co-organizers. 
for um, influence this year. He was like, so I had talked in Colorado Springs and to the CSP CPA for your listeners who might not know what that means. It's the you know Hall of Fame for speakers um, conference, and it was like a hundred people, and I had like an hour. And and he was in the room and really liked not just what I said but how I did it because it was super interactive. And he's like, I want you to come to Phoenix and do that. And I was like, great. And he goes, but you're only going to get 20 minutes and there's 1,200, 1,500 people in the room. Like, <laughs> okay, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I mean, it was dangerous. Welcome to our world. That's the right. world of speakers. <laughs> and I was like, it was dangerous enough in Colorado Springs to open, you know, to turn the floor over to 100 professional speakers. It's hard to keep that on the rails. Right. There was no way that was going to happen in front of 1,200. But the, and so I just sort of had to make do. But there was that moment of, of like, huh. Like, how do I, I'm going to tell you people that you need to be more interactive. I'm going to show you hopefully the data that you need to be more interactive, but I'm not really going to be able to demonstrate it. Right. Because you have 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this is something that I, I, um, I think professional speakers face all the time, you know, oh, you have three hours. Only kidding. 45 minutes. Only <laughs> kidding. 25 minutes. But we still want it to have the same impact and the same value. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think you did a fant- fantastic job. And so that was one challenge that you faced recently. I was actually... I'm curious, what are other challenges you've faced at work and how you've overcome them? What's what's something that you had to kind of work your way around? I mean, for anybody who wants to be, if you're a leader, you're an innovator, right? And and uh, there is nothing, um, there's nothing more stifling to innovation than bureaucracy. And there's nothing that's a bigger bureaucracy than a university. They're made to move slowly. And I think that's actually a good thing, frankly. Uh, I think universities should move slowly. Um, it's... Uh, you know, intellectual traditions that go back hundreds or thousands of years in some cases should not be, you know, um, turned by whatever the public opinion is of this day or even this decade, frankly. At the same time, <laughs> I mean, it can be maddening, right? Part of what I do, you mentioned in the intro, part of what I do is that I run the social research lab. And when I was hired, that lab had done, um, in the previous 18 months before I got there, that lab had done no business, no zero contracts for zero dollars. And and what we really want the lab to be, it's sort of like a teaching hospital. It's an opportunity for our students to bridge what's happening in the classroom with real life because the classroom is a controlled environment and clients are a whole different deal. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, uh, They want surveys done and they think they know exactly what they want and you have to sort of back them off that cliff or they want a focus group but they really need you know participant observation or whatever. So we take on contracts um, from nonprofit, for-profit, city governments to do all kinds of data collection and analysis. My challenge was, but that's a weird thing in a university setting. I mean, we're 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 charging clients money to to do the thing that to educate our students. Um, now they're all overseen by PhDs, so it's you know it's, it's me or some other faculty member who's signing off on each project. The clients never interact with the students, but there's not a there's not a very good model for that. I mean, the yeah. closest thing that most universities would have is like a counseling center. If you've ever had, you know, if you've ever utilized a counseling center at a university or like we had our son, um, he had a minor speech impediment when he was younger. And so he went to the audiology clinic and we paid for that, but it was advanced graduate students who were doing the speech therapy. Um, but we're not talking like the, my dream for the lab wasn't that we'd be, you know, nickel and diming or making a couple hundred dollars. I, I wanted to run dozens of projects at a time for tens of thousands of dollars, and that's that's the goal. And we've managed to get it there, um, and uh, do all kinds of really great and impactful work at 
uh, for organizations all across our region and actually across the country that probably wouldn't even be able to afford this because um, we can help offset the cost with some other things. But they get really good work from us. I, I think our quality is as good as anything out there. We're just a little bit slower um, because we have students and they, you know, their girlfriends break up with them or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> our time, you know, and they have classes and other things. So our timeline is a little bit longer. But convincing the university of like how we needed to be structured, um, even just stupid little things like, you know, everybody's budget at the university resets at the end of the fiscal year. I was like, I can't have that. You know, we, we run, our, our clients don't understand that just because they start a project with us in June, they don't understand that our budget's going to reset July 1st and that they need to pay us so that on July 2nd, so that we can continue to pay our students to do this work. That's craziness. Nobody can run a business that way. Wow. Uh, and so, so that's, that's a huge challenge. I, I mean, the yes. bureaucracy, but having to think um, sort of creatively, I guess, about how to introduce it. Were you able to find anyone else doing anything comparable to, to offer as an example, or is this really that unique? Um, there are some other examples. I went there, but most of these, most of the labs that are like ours, that Baylor has a really good model for something that's in, in Waco, Texas, um, that's very similar to what we try to do. But a, a lot of other universities use these labs as um, cash generators. So they're really only interested in taking on sort of grant-funded research or large-scale surveys for, for major corporations um, that want the university stamp on them or, or you know, uh, quality-of-life surveys from, from massive cities that can pay, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for them. Uh, we didn't want to do that. I went and visited some, and, you know, they were – they had there was no educational mission. The students there were not connected to the research. It was basically it was basically like a for profit entity located within a university. Um, so and just that, back backing you unclear. up a little bit, Josh, to yeah. this this challenge. I'm curious how relationships that you had within the university helped you get past these the red tape. Was there anything <laughs> that you did setting yourself up for success to make that possible? See, Robbie, you're the you you've clearly done this before, right? Because you understand that it's not like I followed the right procedure. It's that I had uh, <laughs> the the right relationship. Anytime you're trying to do something right that's outside of the box, like you, you the only way that it's going to get done is is through relationships. And so, um, the, you know, there were there were some key people that were on our side, and and we certainly in in the administration, but also in the department. And I I really wanted to make sure that I had the support. And I was pre tenure at this point. Um, I just got tenure this summer, um, and so there was a, it's a it, it was no small amount of risk taking. But yes, it was absolutely you know the getting starting from the people most immediate to my situation. So that'd be my department chair, my colleagues. My position was, you know, as long as they're happy and they feel like I'm doing what's in the best interest of the department, then I can justify basically whatever else I'm doing. If I get something wrong, at least they'll know my intentions. Um, you know, if I screw something, if I bid a project at $10,000 and it ends up costing 20 and we have to scramble to figure out how to pay for it, at least they'll know my intention was like, I was going to get 35 students experienced running focus groups or something amazing or whatever. <laughs> uh, that, that, that would always be defensible, right? But I had to get them on board first, and it didn't take much. I mean, they were, like I said, they're great people to work with, and, but that was key. And then it was about finding, finding the, you can't, you know, you, when you're trying to nurture and grow a little idea like that, um, you can't tell, you can't tell everything to everybody. I don't, you can't even tell anybody everything. You, you have to pick and find the people that you sort of sense to be allies in this project, this innovation project that you're working on. 
Do you um, think that you had to do a what what's in it for me analysis for each of them? Because they they couldn't just buy into your dream and from your point of view, but they had to see the value of it for them from where they're stationed in the in the university. I think that makes that that makes sense, but I don't think that that's I mean, I think that makes sense for most fields, but that's universities are so you know, all of the power funnels down. I mean, the mm. department, the, the academic department actually has more, the most power, um, and especially in terms of personnel in the university. Uh, in most cases, deans just are deans are so unlikely to override the decision of a department. And provosts, I mean, are just, it makes news, honestly, if a provost overrides the decision of a dean in a department. So it was less about that than it was about finding um, people who could lend legitimacy. Like, who who was it that had a bigger title than me that was going right, to... Right, you didn't even have tenure. Right. That, I, needed, I needed vice presidents or, or somebody who would... They didn't need to advocate for me. I didn't need that. Like, I didn't need them to give me resources. I mean, I do now, and I certainly rely on, like, the dean of our graduate school to give us graduate assistance. Um, but what I did need is I needed them to shield me um, so I, I don't know how family friendly your podcast is, but I needed them to shield me from the BS, you know, mm, and, you. <laughs> and right. And sort of create a cocoon around me from the bureaucracy. And that's really what I was looking for was straight up protection. Um, I didn't, I didn't need them to champion me. I didn't need them to rewrite laws. I just, and I didn't even need them to come on board and do the work. I, I just needed them to not say no. Yeah. So I was really not, looking not for be her. themselves the ones in the way this, I mean, that's this is right. a fascinating sort of study in in leadership in its own right um how do you move something through so that people feel good along the way and understand your intentions and mm -hmm. the value um, but you know and i still project. like robbie to this day like I, I i know every one of those people by name i know every last thing that they did for me and i thank them all the time you yeah. know i th there there's the, the lab has been so successful and then I, I'm, in turn like that's increased my own profile and i've been able to be successful there's there's plenty of credit to go around, and I'm happy every time I talk, um, every time I'm writing an article, doing whatever. I mean, we we thank those people, we thank them publicly and loudly. We send them notes, we we tell them that this is all due to them because it is all due to them. I mean, right. any there's so many people along the way that could have squashed this at any given point, and then really set my career in a much different direction. Um, that I'm just really grateful that that they didn't, and I make sure they know that. So just sort of going along this path, talking about sort of struggling uh, along that career path, you know, when you're striving for success, there's always this sort of fear of being wrong or, or making mistakes or failing. I would like to hear a little bit about what you're not good at and how you deal with that. <laughs> um, I hate writing, uh, but, but that's a little bit of a, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm good at it, I think, but I don't like doing it. And so I consistently have to find ways um, to trick myself into doing it. Um, but the thing that I'm, that I, the, even though I run the research lab and I run the D church project, um, and, and take on other administrative roles at the university, I'm a faculty assessment fellow, which means I help other departments figure out what their learning impacts and outcomes are. Um, I'm terrible at administrative work. And I, I just, I, I've, I've collected, you know, lots and lots of data over the course of my career. And the hardest thing is always keeping track of it. Um, making sure that I've got the right pseudonym attached to the right person. And I've somehow managed to pull it all together, but it's just, it's not in my skill set. And so I'm constantly relying on other people to help me, you know, I'm, I'm building in systems of checks and balances so that 
if I can, if it's something that can be outsourced, if I can train a, you know, like right now I have a really great graduate student in the lab and uh, she's been with us for a while. And so this year, it's her second year as in her master's program. She's basically going to, she's going to take care of all that. She'll run the lab on a day-to-day basis because she's back qualified. That's right. Awesome. right. Um, it's partially luck, right? But what I was getting to is that I've known her, I've known Adriana since she was a sophomore. We've been working together now for three years. And so it's partially luck, but it's also a lot of training and, right. you know, and I can see what I, I'm already starting to work on what's coming after her. Um, because I understand, I understand that I'm not good at that. And so I'm, I'm always looking for ways to, to sort of make up for those shortcomings. Academically, actually, I'm sort of terrible at theory. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at understanding how data applies to things and how to make connections, but I, I don't always see the theoretical connections like I should. And so, um, I use, I use my, I use my professional conferences as an opportunity to meet good theorists and hopefully to <laughs> make friends with them and, <laughs> um, and, and cultivate those relationships because they have helped me tremendously, um, and try to repay the favors when I can. I just want to say how much I appreciate someone who I know has already published the book and you, uh, you have so many, so many things published, like your the list and list on your CV of pages and pages <laughs> of publications is really tremendous. And yet you said you're not very good at writing. And I understand the difference, the nuance you were getting at. I always say, I'm not bad. I'm not a bad writer. I'm just bad at writing, which is like the act of writing. Yeah. Which is a discipline of sitting down and focusing. And I I (laughs) would um, love to offline just like chat about what your your secrets are, because um, I think that's a skill that you have to really develop if it's a challenge for you. And I know there's people in my life that, you know, they do it all the time. They love to write. And I'm, and of course, in retrospect, they always would say, I love what you do in the world too. (laughs) So we're always looking at someone else thinking, ah, they're doing such a good job at that. (laughs) So, well, so the, I use this lesson as an illustration in my classes all the time. And you've, I'm sure you've seen these people, right? Like the, they're like, oh, I just, I really don't like to do that. And I'm like, I don't care what it's (laughs) Just, you're not, you don't, not only do you not have to like all the parts of your job, you're not going to like all the parts of your job. What you need to get good at is doing the things you don't like to do that you have to do. Because at some level, like that's, that's the deal. I mean, we can all, if, if every job was just about the things we liked to do, I mean, my God. This is uh, like a, a lesson <laughs> in adulting right now. <laughs> this is exactly right. This is what, it, this is what I tell my, I mean, it, and that's partially, I mean, that's, but that's what leadership looked like to my students is me sort of kicking them in the pants and saying like, yeah, I know you don't like to clean data. Now go clean data. Like I don't, <laughs> doesn't, like the way you feel about it doesn't actually matter. It still has to get done. That's fascinating. So I, I'm, I love the, the effort you've made to be successful at work. It sounds like you put so much time and dedication into that and that it clearly will impact you know, the, the hours spent in the office, but it also has an impact on life for you outside of your office. And before we started recording, you were mentioning having a child who's just starting first grade. And so mm-hmm. we have a family. With all of that in mind, what does self-care look like for you? Uh, well, it's about to look a lot different. Um, I, I've had We've had this... this a strange sort of um, a strange feeling. I don't know that's strange in the world, but this dual sort of freedom and pressure where my wife, um, until my son went to kindergarten last year, she was staying home full time with him and uh, he went to school and then she went back to school to get her starting to get her ASL American Sign Language degree. And then, and then this fall starting 
a role as a director of a local nonprofit while she's also still in school. So while the, while she was at home, there was all this pressure for me. Uh, I'm sure she, I mean, she had pressures her own, but the pressure I felt was to be the sole income provider. Um, but I had all this crazy amounts of freedom. I could get up at any time I wanted. I could take the kids to school or not take the kids to school in our carpool. I could pick them up or not pick them up. I could show up at lunch or not. I mean, it was insane. So self-care for me meant like when I was tired, I quit. And when I felt really energized, I worked. And now that we have a much more um, regimented structure, it's it's going to be a transition. It's going to be like, we're going to have to be really intentional about taking breaks and time for ourselves. And fortunately we live in Colorado. So that means they'll probably just mean going to the mountains, frankly, um, or, or playing more golf or skiing. I mean, we have a myriad of options, but it's not anymore going to be this thing where we just wake up and decide like, what do we want to do today? I'm feeling a little bit run down. It's, we're going to have to say like, Oh, next Thursday, that's the day. That's more the day that planful. we're going to go hiking. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, that you're thinking about it. It's such an important piece because burnout is real, and mm-hmm. particularly when you've got so many. I mean, yeah, working late at night and getting up early in the morning and spending all day and trying to be present with your child and with your partner and all that stuff. It's it can be daunting. So, so kudos to you that you you uh you sat down with your wife and started having a family discussion about it. Cause I think it's it's pretty important, and um, I'm not sure if everyone's doing a good job of it. I'm a little worried about those of us that are that are burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, it's it sounds strange because we didn't sit down and have a conversation. We just never stop talking. Mm. Uh, we just are always talking to each other about nice. what's coming up tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Um, and I think yes, families, families, kids are really resilient. Resilient people are really resilient. The most stressful mar- the times of my marriage and my friends' marriages have been, you know, when when they're not on the same page, you know, we can do it. I feel like we can probably do anything for a short amount of time, as long as we both understand what we're walking into, mm-hmm. you know, where if we decide like, Hey, we're going to work a lot in the next two months. Um, what's sort of actually where we're at at this moment. Um, but we're on board with that. We know, we know what that means. Uh, we know we're going to spend a little bit more money on childcare. We're going to have to be more intentional about breaks. Um, but we also know it's going to come to an end. Right. Uh, I think it's gonna- so important to, to have something on the horizon to look forward to. That's a, that's a piece my wife yeah. and I have had that conversation. Yeah, good point. You know, for us, is it is you would rather spend money on experiences than than stuff. And mm-hmm. so, having vacations or trips to see family, kind of always on the horizon. I'm the kind of person who tells my friends in March the date for my birthday in September. <laughs> I'm like, hey, is it too soon? I mean, it's like <laughs> the second half of the year already for me. Um, well, this year, this year you got to look forward to Phoenix in July. What could possibly be better? <laughs> You know, I have another conference I go to every winter and they go to like all the snowy places like Minneapolis. Oh, so God. like February in Minneapolis and then Phoenix in July. It's awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you get, you know, it's a good way the to hotel rooms are cheaper. <laughs> so I actually, I want to talk a little bit about this professional network that you've grown over the last five, 10 years. I mean, clearly you've moved around a lot in your, in, in your career. You develop relationships along the way you change the focus a little bit as you're working you have your grad school connections your doctorate program connections you know in what ways have you managed to stay in touch with these folks and and that you're nurturing these relationships uh yeah that's a really good question um the there are for me it's about trying to understand what each person needs you know there are people in my network who i who are un 
um, unqualifiedly, had a word, whatever. They're, they're, they're always definitely on my team, but I don't talk to them often. We don't interact often. We maybe see each other once a year at conferences, but I know they're on my side. Um, and I, I get that. Like those people don't need to be smothered. Uh, we don't have to. And then there are other people that like my advisor from graduate school for a long time, for several years after I graduated, the only way that we were really going to interact with each other is if we were working together. And so I really pursued that relationship and wanted to, um, and we ended up writing two or three articles together, Richard Pitt. And now we're just friends. Um, if we work together, that'd be super, but it's not like it's necessary. Um, and, and there, so everything, and there's everything in between that. And for what it's meant for me, is like really trying to think carefully and intentionally, what does each person need from me in this moment? Um, because I've already, at some point, like I've already decided they're good for me. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're a good influence on me in some way. They can help me out with a particular problem or whatever it is. Um, and, and thinking about what it is that they needed from me helped to help me to get out a little bit of that, um, that conundrum of like, oh, well, so-and-so is more powerful than me. So I should always, you know, be on their time frame, or I should drive to see them or I should make sure and, you know, uh, not care when they bump me from a schedule or whatever. Um, Instead, I, I, once I start, once I reframed that, the power dynamic shifted. It gave me a little bit more legitimacy, um, and and those relationships started to happen a little bit more. Those networking relationships felt less like networking and more like authentic relationships that led to opportunities. That's great. I love the intentionality around individualizing this and not just having a carte blanche response. You know, everyone gets a phone mm -hmm. call or everyone gets a a Facebook update, but there's a <laughs> in between. Sure. And I think you're right. There are people in our lives. I mean, I have friends from, I don't know, from like seventh grade that you can pick up every year or two. And it's like you talked to them yesterday. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And then there are other people that actually probably aren't in my life very much because they require a lot more, you know, intentionality. Yeah. And you're like, well, it's really it's hard if we're not working together. And if we're working together, right. yes, we're going to see a lot of each other. But finding that in between balance for people and making an effort to meet them sort of what what they need until those relationships do feel like you said like friendships and like you're not only going to them for a request i think that's a really important point how do you follow up or check in with people without saying hey the reason i'm calling or reaching out to you is because i need a reference you know like, right. we haven't talked in three years but i loved working with you <laughs> and please well, let other people how great i am <laughs> even in the in the few weeks now since nsa I've had, you know, just like any conference, when you meet a lot of people, you have the follow-ups afterwards. And, uh, and it's been a, it's been a flurry of me trying to decide like, oh, does this person need attention right now? Um, because this, th there's a couple of opportunities that have come up since then that are like, this is only going to exist for the next, you know, week and a half. And I need to pour some effort and energy into this. Or is this like a, a slow burn thing where, we're just connecting because we like each other and we want to follow up, you know, that kind of, as friends. Um, maybe it leads to something and maybe it doesn't, but being able to be real clear about what's going on and what your time frame is. Uh, and I don't, I don't think anybody, I mean, you don't get bothered. I don't get bothered by that. You know, the, yeah, uh, about people who come up and, and, and they want something from me. If I can help them, I'm, I'm happy to, I don't think people feel like it's an instrumental relationship. What they care about is that you're not couching it. And it's like, I want to be best buddies. Also, could you introduce me to such and right. such? Like, that's right, the you're thing. right. If they, if you, if I could do something, if I could make an introduction for somebody right now, and 
I knew enough about them to think that the connection between the two people would be valuable for them, I would make the connection. I don't have to be best friends with both of them for that to be true. I just have to know enough about them to think this is valuable for both people. It's not just going to be a right. sales call for one. Um, because then it would, it would for me, it would feel too cheap if it just was like me selling out to people I care about, to people who are looking to, you know, to meet them. To make money. <laughs> right. um, but is there a, a method you use for tracking all these people? I mean, that's always the tricky part. There's, there's, like you just said, you go to tons of conferences. So you meet those sort of more yeah. casual connections. And then there's the people you actually worked with or went to school with. What's your method for keeping track? Um, it's, it, you know, it's, it's probably, it's probably not a very good method, but the, um, I, early on in graduate school, I learned that you can go to a conference and people are enamored by big names. I mean, people you would have never heard of, right? None of your listeners would have ever heard of that are like they're, they're sociology famous. Um, and you can go to their sessions and listen to them and, and then try and get in a word edgewise afterwards and tell them how great they were or that you really liked such and such thing that they did. My feeling was that I, you know, and, and this is part of my presentation and part of my identity is that content rules, right? If, if you, if you say something or do something interesting, I want to find you that, you know, something that I think is interesting and relevant to my own work. I don't care if you're a graduate student or if you're a full professor, I'm going to come up and, at the conference. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to give you my card and say, we should follow up. Um, I would love to talk more and, and have a specific ask. Like, I don't want to just waste your time. I want to talk to you more about this particular idea as it relates to my research about X or whatever. And the same thing in the, in the non-academic world, it's, um, I, the, the good content comes in a variety of places and that's what endures. You know, if people really have something smart to say or have done something really smart, those, those are the kinds of, and those contacts, like those go into like a special mental file. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and but the rest I, are like a. Josh, a I just of, realized. I just realized I'm asking the person who already said that, that one of the things they struggle with is admin. I asked you, how do you keep track yes, of all your no, contacts? And so, of course, you're answering. <laughs> those go in a right. special mental file. Mental file, right? <laughs> uh, the others end up being uh, a stack of business cards on my desk. And and uh, at, at one point, like I tried to pursue all of them equally, and. Uh, and I realized that it was it was exhausting and it didn't pay off. And so I, I actually did sort of sit down and do this like this mental audit a few years ago. Like, what what is working for me? Like, where do I find relationships that breathe life into my own work, into my life? And I I realized that it was the people who it didn't matter if they were socially awkward, it didn't matter if they had a great degree, it didn't matter if they you know had the most prestigious position on earth. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna seek them out and and see what we can learn from each other. So Josh, this is actually an area that I talk about. This is an area that I speak about quite a bit and write about and relates really well to this podcast. I'm trying to help people stop wasting time networking. And and that, that, that image you just had us think about, which is you go to this conference and you pick up all these business cards and you put them back, you know, next to your keyboard when you get home to your office and you have these great intentions to follow up with all of them. But really, you can't do that. And so they kind of gather there and then you reorganize them into a special box and then they go to a drawer and then a year later or less, you recycle them and you're like, I don't remember what event that was from. And then you go out oh, and yeah. pick up more cards. No, I skipped, the, I skipped those two steps in between. They just go straight. So right, into yeah, <laughs> I, but I think that you're right. Like we have to differentiate that, that even in the, in the moment throughout the conference, you know, I was meeting lots and lots of people, but I actually 
um, turn a corner of the card so that when they're in a pile when I get home, the ones with the corner turned over, those stand out to me a little bit. And I already oh, know yeah. that I wanted to keep a better eye on them. Yeah. No, that's a, and it's a, it's, so those it's more, tricks. yeah, it's like, it's like they go into a different, I've got a little card holder that holds my business cards. It, uh, and so maybe I shouldn't be like too upfront about this, but like at NSA, what I was doing is that if I was putting most cards into my pocket, the ones I, the ones from people that I cared about and wanted to pursue, frankly, like yours, like that went like right into the, right into the back of my own business cards. Right. Cause you have to make that distinction in the moment because yep. sometimes you're just oh, standing there. People just start handing you cards. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. okay, we haven't even talked yet. I don't even know what this is for. I don't know what this <laughs> is for. Right. I don't. <laughs> Yeah, it's not sticking in my head because we haven't had a conversation yet. So I, this is great. I think that the very first thing you do is you make the distinction and then all the follow-up that you decide to do comes from there. But you can't start with the expectation that you're going to follow with everybody equally because they don't have equal importance in your life and, and because we don't have time <laughs> to do all those yeah. things. Um, and maybe you do. I mean, maybe you do. I mean, I, I don't know who does. I, honestly. Well, when, I was a, when I was a young graduate student, like I did. <laughs> I, because you know what, I, you know what, honestly, I I did have the time, and I was so wow. green that I was getting eight business cards out of a week long conference. You know, <laughs> like I was, I was not, I didn't have the skills to make those connections, and so yep. I could actually pursue them all. But you're right; like it didn't take long before you you start getting better at that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, and that you realize that there's a lot of cards here, and I have to figure out what to do with them. Yeah, yeah. So actually, you you were referencing back to to being in grad school. I I was curious. Um, we have just a few minutes left. Thinking about if you had an opportunity to speak to your younger self, say 25 years old, what is the one thing you'd encourage yourself to do to build a strong and supportive network? Um, so I think that when I was younger, I, uh, I, I had the, the one thing that happened in grad school that I wish um, I hadn't paid attention to was this, this need to intensely focus and specialize. And I, I knew I didn't want to do that, but that was the pathway I was told to getting a, getting a quote unquote good job. And I wish I had understood earlier. I understand it now. Um, but I wish I had understood it earlier that, uh, a job is what you make of it. You know, you can, you can have what, uh, almost whatever kind of profile you want these days from wherever you are. The if you want to if you want to if you want to be well respected by your colleagues in academia and 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 do good work um, then do good work you know find find the ways you're you know every institution comes with its own challenges maybe you don't have graduate students that can help you with your research but also that means you don't have graduate students that you have to spend time mentoring for their own theses which is rewarding but takes a lot of time so the you know it's even, you can do you can have the kind of career that you want to have. From most places, I don't. I don't mean to. I don't mean to make this sound super easy. If you're in a position where you're working two thirty-hour a week dead-end jobs just to make ends meet, you know, I, that's a different kind of situation than what I'm talking about. I just mean like I think we get caught up in in this sort of conventional thinking about what makes a good career or what is the right pathway. And I, I wish I had, you know, stayed true uh, a little bit earlier to this understanding of like I want to do that kind of work. How do I do that kind of work? Um, so there was a, f a few years there where I got caught up doing things that I don't think, I think paid off on my CV, but I don't think were actually productive yeah. for my life. That's great. That's really good advice. And hopefully folks that are kind of just getting started who are listening to this can take that to heart. The idea of, of not getting stuck in too much of a specialization if you feel like 
that's not where you, your heart is and that you don't have to always do what everyone else is doing. Um, <laughs> right. And that, that actually could be a good thing. So um, this is sort of my wrap up question. And I'm just I love um, to hear your thoughts on this. If we were to meet a year from now and you were telling me what a great year it's been. Oh, good God. What accomplishments <laughs> would we be celebrating? Um, so that's a really good question. I, um, uh, I don't actually know anymore. Um, and for the first time in a very long time, I've been so focused on getting tenure, um, that congratulations. Okay, thank you. And, and sort of, and, and tenure is just a career milestone, right? So your listeners have these two, whatever your career milestone is, you get focused on those things. And, I had intentionally decided I wasn't going to look past it because I wanted, I, I knew that in order to do something that would be fulfilling and, you know, to the extent that we're all striving for greatness, that it would be great. It would be the, by great, I mean that it would be the best and most creative thing that I could do. I needed that space. And so the last few months have really been about trying to figure out what that might look like um, and trying to be okay with not having a capital G goal anymore. Especially after that, having such a rigid, right. focused, yep. linear path, uh, you know, kind of goal. Yep, now your exactly. goal is to like have a goal. <laughs> <laughs> no. And uh, you know what you say that, but that's, thank you. That's really good language. And I'm going to, I'm going to, that is going to stick in my head. My goal is to have a goal. And uh, so I think if it's, if it's been a really good year, if we meet, you know, if we're at NSA uh, in where is it, Orlando or whatever next summer, and I see you again, I will hopefully be able to tell you, um, I know exactly what I'm doing for the next two to three years. Wow. That's, that's what I'm trying to figure out. And I think oh, we're, we're moving there. We're getting closer. Uh, I can sort of feel it happening. Um, but I don't know exactly. I don't know 100% locked in what it's going to look like yet, but I'm trying to be okay with that. Well, this has been just a fascinating conversation and I want to thank you again great for me too. for sharing all of this. And I hope that it, this sort of triggers in you this like next steps you've already were talking about doing and it gives you the encouragement to do it. I'm going to include in the show notes uh, your LinkedIn, your Twitter. I'll do a link to Church Refugees, uh, the Amazon link oh, to that. Great. Uh, I'll also put a link to the, the Church Project. Have I missed any other good projects that you're related to that I should, oh uh and also to the organization the social research so that sounds like yeah, really you know, fascinating probably people the to know about thing to do is just to link people to joshpacker.com fantastic I, that'll great. contain a lot of those things excellent well i'll make sure all that's in the show notes so if anyone wants to dig a little deeper to learn more about you and stay connected they have a way to do that and again this is this has been really wonderful thank you so much josh I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Josh Picard. It was a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. There's something Josh said that really stood out for me. It was when he was defining what leadership means for him. It bears repeating because we're being challenged right now to keep a sober understanding of what leadership looks like in our country. He said, we all know the traits that supposed great leaders have, but when I look at those in abstract, they often, if you didn't know that they were framed in a chapter in a book on great leadership, but if you instead had erroneously assumed the chapter was titled How to Be a Narcissist and an Egomaniac, I think you would conclude that they were one and the same, because we get some really bad advice about what it means to be a great leader in our culture. If you're in a leadership position, reflect on this so you can lead by example. 
This episode is titled Act with Integrity because that concept was such a large influence on Josh's career. While he could have followed the path of least resistance in his field, he was called upon to do something different. He said that it was important to have a good sense of who you are because without a strong compass, it's really hard to act with integrity and you'll end up chasing the thing that everyone else says is really important. In what ways are you chasing other people's dreams or acting with integrity instead as you move forward in your career? Are you able to solicit trusted advice from people who care about you and your family? These are the questions worth asking as you become more successful in your field. And just a moment ago, Josh was sharing his approach to networking and I really found it to be a powerful reframe. He begins by asking himself, what does this person need from me in this moment? Asking this question helped him get out of the conundrum of feeling like he was asking for something from people who are more powerful than him. The power dynamics shifted when he realized there was something he could offer in return. I've always advised that networking becomes relationship building when you offer before you ask. You can be really creative in what you offer because no matter how successful someone is, they still have areas in their life they feel less confident. If your skills and experience are a match for what they need, that's a great offer. Don't undersell yourself and the value you can add. Try to stay in touch even when you don't need something. This could be a quick note of encouragement before a big event they're hosting or one of congratulations after they publish a book. Set a Google alert for your key contacts you'll know when they're in the news or keep an eye on those updates from LinkedIn. But don't let too much time pass for your most important relationships and the ones you hope will become significant. To help me manage my ever-expanding network, I use Contactually, a robust CRM perfect for managing my professional network. As an affiliate for Contactually, they're offering my listeners a free 30-day trial, no credit card required. Let me know if you sign up for a free trial and I'll help you get set up for success. Visit contactually.com slash invite slash schmooze for more details. That's Contactually, C-O-N-T-A-C-T-U-A-L-L-Y dot com slash invite slash schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. For your convenience, I'll add the link to the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 21. Well, we've done it again. We've reached the end of another episode. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze. I want to sincerely thank all of you who've already subscribed and left a rating and review on iTunes. By subscribing and leaving a rating and review, you're helping this podcast get discovered by more listeners. Will you subscribe and leave an honest rating and review? Include your Twitter handle in your review so I can give you a shout out. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. That's schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. Thank you in advance and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be sharing how to take advantage of those small networking moments at conferences. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.